Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Grass withers and the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. You join me in prayer. Father, as we come to this section, as we come to this end of this series on the Ten Commandments, I ask for your help, God. May the gospel be seen and heard clearly this morning. And that is a supernatural work, God. I pray for clarity in my speech. I pray for clarity in our thinking But ultimately, God, may your Holy Spirit give us eyes to see. May we be convicted of our sin. May we see ourselves rightly, confess ourselves accurately, and see you for the God you are, and see our Savior for the rescuer that he is, that God, as we leave this place this morning, may our joy be full in all that you are for us, and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do the work only you can do in our hearts this place, in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in our final week of our Ten Commandments series. You've made it. We're 12 sermons through. We got through Ten Commandments, and this is our final command for us to get through. And I know this has been a difficult series to get through. I've heard plenty of comments on uh, getting, needing to get thicker boots and such, uh, you know, as we get through all these commandments. But I, wanted, I want small comfort this may be. I want you to know this has been on harder than no one than me. Uh, I, I've ran long, as some of you may have noticed. I've ran long on a few of my sermons, uh, 39 minutes a couple of times. And you'll be surprised to know That is me giving you a tenth of the things that I could have brought in expounding the commandments. The stack of books that are now on my shelf back in the office that I read through. uh, The conviction coming from these Ten Commandments, when you really expound them, is you could preach for days. I could have done a month on each command. So it may be small comfort to you that you were uh, maybe bit a little bit by this series, but take comfort, your pastor was bit worse, was hurt worse, was driven even lower than what you may have been. No one has been more crushed by me than the weight of the law's demands. When it comes to this 10th commandment, it's really a, a perfect capstone to all that we've been saying throughout all of these 10 commandments. The 10th commandment, unlike the other five in the second table, we talked about the the Ten Commandments have the two tables of the law, the first table being the beginning four commandments of what love for God looks like, and then the last six, uh, starting with honor your father and mother, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, are about what love for neighbor looks like. But the first five in this second table were all... um, they, they, we, we expounded on them to the level of they dealt with your emotions, your thoughts, your thoughts and your motives. That that's what they commands. They went down, down and further down into not just the surface action of breaking the commandment, but actually the thoughts and the motives behind them. For instance, in talking about do not murder, the sixth commandment, do not thou shalt not murder, do not murder. 
it wasn't just that if you didn't physically murder someone, all of a sudden you've nailed it, you've completed the sixth commandment. It goes deeper than that. So we would talk about, yes, the sixth commandment forbids you to physically murder someone. But it also forbids every emotion, every motive, every thought, every desire that if it were to work itself all the way out would lead to murder. So things such as envy, hatred, jealousy, uh, all these sorts of things that would lead to murder are also a violation of this commandment. We would dig deeper to the heart motivations underneath these commandments. And that's what made these commandments so crushing. When we get to the 10th, it does the work for me. Because at a surface level, the 10th commandment is immediately dealing with the motives of your heart. The 10th commandment is essentially that you would not covet. Well, that is not a thing you do. If, if If you take your neighbor's possession, that is stealing. But the 10th commandment, its surface level obedience is a heart issue. It's saying you are not to desire even your neighbor's stuff. It commands you not to covet. And what are you to not covet? Essentially anything that is your neighbor's. Your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet something is to desire it. And the the word in Hebrew there is, is the same word. Sometimes it's translated desire instead of covet. For instance, in Genesis 3, the first sin in the, in the garden of Eden, the serpent comes along and presents this fruit, and Eve looks at the fruit, and she sees that, it was this, that the tree was desired to make one wise, that she coveted this fruit. She desired this fruit. And so we talk about this word covet, it essentially means to desire. It's to desire something. Um, it, it used to be church speak. It doesn't happen as much anymore. But has anyone ever heard or used the phrase, I covet your prayers? Has anybody heard that? Can I have a, no one's ever heard that phrase. You've heard it? So it used to be a thing you'd say all the time, well, I covet your prayers. And they weren't saying, I sinfully am coveting your prayers. It's, they were saying, I desire your prayers. I want your prayers. It's it's out of fashion, and I'm fine because I think it sounds kind of silly. No one knows what covet means anymore. Uh, but covet is simply to desire. And, that's, and what, what makes this command wrong is, is not that you are to not desire, but you're not to desire the wrong things. It condemns not desires as they stand, but it condemns wrongful desire. So Psalm 19.10 even says, that the law of the Lord is to be desired more than gold. It's not that desire is wrong, but it, what is wrong is the wrongful desire. And I, I, I spend time on this point because sometimes there's this misunderstanding in Christianity that what we are basically about is to squash all sorts of enjoyment. And, and so you hear a tenth command. We're going to do a ten commandment series, and what that's going to mean is Darren's desires. We're all going to show up, and we're going to say all the things we should not enjoy out there. And don't you dare go out there and enjoy yourself. It's no, 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 no. And that's the way Christianity does get 
portrayed in, in, our, in our popular culture's mindset sometimes, that we are just about the squishing of all enjoyment. The command to not desire is sometimes communicated as though the Christian says that you should squash all desire. But let me be clear, the issue is not about having desires. It is about having wrongfully placed desires. If you are listening through this series, the only thing you've heard me say is to, um, uh, is to abandon all the things that make you happy, to abandon all the things that you find joyous. Please hear me. The, aban- the message, that is not the message. The heartbeat of this message is to abandon all that in the end will never ultimately satisfy you. The, the heartbeat of this message is not to abandon what will ha- make you happy, what you think will make you happy. It is to abandon all that will never satisfy you and will ultimately lead to your death and your condemnation. That's been the heartbeat of this message. To then repent and turn to Christ, who alone is the source of all joy. So when you hear the prohibitions from the Ten Commandments, know that they are all actions that do not lead to your ultimate joy and satisfaction. When the Scripture says, do not covet your neighbor's stuff, it's not saying do not have desires, do not want for other things. It's saying do not want for other things that are not meant to be yours that they are your neighbors. They are not what God has for you. They are not God. They are not God's will for you. Do not have these wrong desires, not because we don't want you to be happy, not because God doesn't want you to have joy, but because he doesn't want you to have false joy, but to discover true joy, ultimate joy. The summary, this summary in the 10th commandment has its reach into all the other commandments. It's, a, it's the perfect end of these of these commandments. It reaches back into all the others, which says, do not seek your joy in that which does not satisfy. Do not seek your joy in what does not satisfy. People are convinced, if I would get rid of this person, if I would murder this person, then I'd be happier. If I would just have this possession and I want it so bad, I will steal it. It will make me happy. This will bring me joy. The 10th commandment and the, and the 7th, 8th commandment are connected in that it is trying to warn you against pursuing a false joy through breaking of the 8th commandment to not steal. The Heidelberg Catechism says it like this. It's in a question answer format. Here's how the Heidelberg says this. What does the 10th commandment require of us? It says, answer, that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our heart. So there's a, a, a negative, that the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our own hearts, but that at all times we hate all our sin with our whole heart and delight, delight in all righteousness. Westminster Larger Catechism, I like the way it says it as well. What are the duties required in the 10th commandment? The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. So what is then forbidden in the 10th commandment? The catechism asks, says this, 
The sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. From these summaries, we see how clearly coveting relates to contentment. We covet what someone else has because we begin to think that somehow what we have is insufficient. We are dissatisfied with the state that we are in, and so we look around at those that we perceive have it better, and we desire our life, we desire their life over ours. We look around, we see what they have, we are discontented with the state that we are in, and we say, what they have would make my life better. That would be better than this life that I have. Contentment, discontentment, and coveting are all tied together. Over there is where it would be better. I want that. And so coveting has a lot to do with your contentment. In the battle for this commandment, I think two things need to be done. Seems to me two things need to be done. To battle for this commandment, we need first to see the seriousness of coveting. To see the seriousness of the coveting nature of our hearts and repenting. To see that coveting is not this innocent. Because this is our culture, our consumerism, our capitalism runs off of this mindset that it's totally okay for you to give full wind to want the yacht, the mansion on both coasts, and the, the mountain retreat, and all of these things. And it's totally okay for you to want and want and want and pursue and pursue and pursue. And what do we call it? We call it desiring the American dream. Do we not? That we're all about coveting is actually almost a, 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 a virtue in our society. To say everything out there that I want, I should be entitled, I should want it, and I'm going to sacrifice everything else that I can in my pursuit to get the thing that I want. Where I am at is not sufficient, and over there is where I want to be. And so to battle for this commandment, we have to first see the seriousness of what we are talking about when we talk about coveting. And secondly, we need to see the grace that is lavishly poured out upon us in Christ and finding true contentment in the only place that it's found. But first, the seriousness of of coveting. What is really going on when we covet, when we covet something? And in a very real way, the tenth commandment and the first commandment are just bookends. And they look, you kind of look at them and they, if you take time looking and you realize, oh, those are kind of the mirror images of each other. They look, you put them together, you realize, oh, those look a lot the same. They're the bookends between all of these other commandments. And the commandment to not covet is tied very closely to the first commandment. Does anyone remember what it is? Have no other gods. The first and the tenth are very related. They look slightly different, but really they're just kind of mirror images of each other. And I say that because when you covet and desire for something God has said you are not to have, what you are really doing is creating an idol. You are creating another god. You are saying that if I were to have, or if you were to have this object of your de desire, it would bring you something that only this thing can bring you. 
This, this yacht or whatever, this house, this thing, this job, this bank account, these things, if I were to have them, they would bring me the thing that I long for. And what you have done is not only coveted, you've coveted this other thing, you have, in effect, erected an idol. You have said, this is what is going to satisfy me. And in saying that, you are saying, this is my God. The way coveting sounds in our modern vernacular is not don't covet your neighbor's ox. Like, honestly, if that's the commandment, I got that one down. I don't, I don't want an ox. <laughs> I don't care how great it is. My yard is not going to keep up with your ox. I don't want your ox. That's not the way the coveting sounds in our language today. It sounds more like this. We do say, if I had their job my life would be a lot better. If I had their bank account, if I had their free time, if I had their money, if I had their family status at the time, if my kids were older if I, or if my kids were younger, or we're always looking for the next thing. That's the way our coveting language, that's what it sounds like when we, when we speak coveting language today. But what we are doing in that moment is that we are desiring and saying that God is, What God wants, God is not what we want. God's will for us is not what we want. God will not make us happy. But what will make me happy? Will will more free time and more money? That's what will make me happy. That is the nature of coveting. It is breaking the first and the tenth commandment go hand in hand. When we say this thing, if this other thing that this person has that I don't have, if I had it, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. Then everything would be fine. We are coveting their stuff and we are having other gods before God. We are saying more than God can satisfy me, more than what God has for me. God and his providence has put you in the position that you are in. And when you desire to be in somebody else's position, you are desiring what God does not will for you. The seriousness of coveting is that it is an attempt to dethrone the God of the universe as an insufficient and unsatisfying Savior. When you covet, you are in a very real way saying, this is a better God than the God of the universe. That is a serious accusation. That's breaking one and ten and all of them in between in one way or another. It is condemning rebellion at its core. And to push harder, I'm going to push a little harder here. All discontentment is at its root then a kind of coveting. When we say, I'll be happy when, or if I only had this, or if only circumstances would go this way, we are bowing down to the idol of that thing or what we think that thing will deliver. It's coveting, it is sin, it is rebellion against God and deserving of his justice and his judgment. You can diagnose your success at not coveting by looking at your own discontentment. When you go home and your discontentment, what do you think will make you happy? What is the thing you're after right now? What's the thing that you're looking for? What gives you peace? Or what do you think I would have peace if this thing? Discontentment is coveting. Flip with me, you've got your Bible out to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. Fascinating passage, probably familiar to you. Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Behold, a man came up to him, this is to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus said, and this is 
notice here, this is the second table. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Jumps back to the fifth. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The summary found in Leviticus of the second table. Jesus lists off the second table. Verse 20. Young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. For all that this individual could do, and he could do a lot. He's saying, I didn't, I, these, this second table at a service level, I, I'm nailing it. I'm doing good. For all the ways that he did this, his, Jesus calls out his true treasure. He calls out his true security. He calls out his functional God, and the man is laid bare. Go get rid of all your stuff. If, this, if, if you really are keeping all the commandments, how about the tenth one? Do not treasure, do not treasure all your neighbor's things. Do not find tearing down your idol. He doesn't mention any of the first table of have no other gods and worship the right God rightly. Uh, don't take God's name in vain and honor the Sabbath. He doesn't lay those out, but he lays him bare. Jesus isn't playing around, and he does not, and God does not want to be a halfway or a halftime Savior. Another way, quickly, to diagnose your coveting if you're not convinced that you covet. Another way to diagnose your coveting is this. Don't just look at the things that maybe you do that maybe you shouldn't, like you know, coveting someone else's stuff or finding your peace or your joy and other things. Don't just look at the things you know that maybe you shouldn't do, but how about look at the things that you know you should do, but you always find some reason not to do them. Other things always take up time for that. For example, a couple of them. How quickly and easily are we persuaded to abandon the corporate gathering of the church? Now, you all are here, so I know I'm maybe preaching to the choir. But honestly, how easily are we convinced that we should abandon the corporate gathering of the church? Every Christian, if they are honest, knows they should gather with God's people to worship with them. I mean, it's not a, we could build the case, and I could build the case scripturally to you, but everyone knows at a very fundamental level, we should gather when the churches gather. God's people know this, and yet we do not. Many times, why? You should, when, when, when the time for the church to gather, so many, we are led to go do any number of anything else. Why? And you should ask yourself, what is it that I think I'm getting when I'm wherever else that I am, that is better than what I would get by being obedient to God's purpose and will for me. What is it that I think I'm getting everywhere else but what God has for me? What about the others? That's kind of my first. What spiritual disciplines? We could talk about them, but spending time in prayer, um, reading the scripture, uh, having gospel-centered conversations with your family, with your loved ones. And you get down, when it gets to the end of the day, how many times have you found time to not read the scriptures from other things making themselves available for you how many times have you not found time to read the scriptures or to pray privately or with your spouse and your family but you found time for many other things in the day and when you're walking to the couch or the chair at the end of the day and you're going to sit down and turn the tv on that you don't take 10 or 15 minutes maybe five minutes even to read a little bit of your bible and to pray because why why is that not happening Instead of doing that, you are saying something very clearly in that moment. 
by the, by the absence of doing what God would have for you to do. And what you are saying is that there is something that will satisfy you and make you happy, and it isn't God and His will for you. And I say this from experience. If it feels like I'm jumping on you, I am. I, I'm, I am after you. But I'm after myself. I speak this from experience. When you sit down and it's so easy to put on an episode of a TV show from Netflix... Darla and I, at the end of the day, we put the kids down from bed. It's just been some sort of a nightmare. And at the end of the day, I've worked all day. You know, it's bedlam. And you sit down. And I know I should take five minutes to check with my wife. How are things going? How are you doing? How's, you know, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? Maybe we should take four minutes to pray. Five minutes to pray. And we're not talking about we're going to stay up until two in the morning praying. Just checking in. And you know, that pull is there. To just put on an episode of The Office. It's really funny. And, I mean, it's, you know, whatever. Or anything else. Actually, more likely, The Great British Baking Show. Phenomenal TV show. But, you know what? That is evidence of my coveting heart. What I'm saying in that moment is this TV show will bring me a peace that I cannot find by turning my face to God. It's coveting. It's idolatry. It's sin. And it's serious. And it's damnable. 1 Timothy chapter 6 um, God, we could really lay this on even harder. Uh, first, first Timothy chapter 6, give us a clear understanding. Um, he's talking about godliness. First Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. We could, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, longing for what they do not have, other things. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, envy, love of money, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the first thing I talked about, the seriousness of coveting. We, we, we cannot just blow it off. Everybody does it. Yeah? Scripture forbids it because what it does is it leads to ruin. They have wandered away from this craving. They have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I said two reasons. The first is seeing the seriousness of coveting. The second thing, the second thing I said in battling against uh, this commandment, the second way to battle covetousness is to open our eyes to the treasure that Christ is. First way is to see the seriousness of coveting. It's serious. Second way is to see the treasure that Christ is. Have our eyes open to it. Seeing that we are crushed by our own idolatrous hearts, we need to not only see how desperate our condition is, but to have our eyes opened to the superior joy and satisfaction that is found only in Christ. This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter uh, 4. It's Going back to the left, if you were with me in 1 Timothy, just a few more scriptures here. Philippians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3. No, we want to go 4, verse uh, 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Paul is writing this from prison. But not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do 
all things through him who strengthens me. Oftentimes, only verse 13 is quoted. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And they'll put it out as, as some sort of a bravado statement. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But they, oftentimes, they miss the punch of what Paul is saying. He's saying that in having Christ, he can face anything, including suffering, loss, hunger, and need, because he is satisfied, he is content, and what Christ has provided for him. And how do I know that's what he means? Now you go back to chapter 3 and you look at verses 7 through 11. Paul has just gone through this litany of all of his good qualities, all these amazing, his religious pedigree. In chapter 3, verse 7, he starts like this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All things be good things and bad things. I've lost everything and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is convinced that to gain Christ is of such high value that it outweighs all you could ever lose. To gain Christ is of such high value that it outweighs all you could lose and would outweigh every good thing in this temporal life you could ever acquire. This is what I have tried to drive home every Sunday in this series and, and, and hopefully every Sunday that you're here, try to drive home the joy that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments are about the gospel. Why does Darren drive home this crushing reality of us against the law? Because it puts you in the place to rejoice in all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. What I mean is that one of the primary ways you fight the battle against coveting, and really at the command, all commandments at a heart level, is first by seeing yourself as the lawbreaker that you are and repenting, and secondly, by seeing the forgiveness and grace coming to you through the work of Christ and rejoicing in that, being satisfied in who Jesus is, praising God for it and seeking to please and love God, love the one who loved you so greatly. What we need to see is not just the Ten Commandments, though they are essential, but alongside of them, the gospel declaration to us. If we leave ourselves only in the shadow of the Ten Commandments, we find ourselves crushed. Well, this is what the Heidelberg Catechism goes on to say. I'll read a little more here. The Heidelberg goes on to say, in its conclusion of its section on the Ten Commandments, Can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Answer, no. No. You Forget it. You cannot keep them. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so... That with a sincere resolution, they begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Then it asks, 
This is just a great question. Maybe you've asked this. Hear, hear yourself maybe in this question. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? <laughs> I, I, loved, I, I read that and I thought, man, I've, I've asked that question myself. Why, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? Answer, first, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrived at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. So the question we are then left with as we finish up our series in the Ten Commandments is how do we respond? You don't need to turn here, but I'm going to read from Luke 18. This is the last passage we'll read here. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Maybe you know the passage. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also, being Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the one crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men, both aware of the law of God, two very different reactions. Will confessing your sin before a righteous standard leave you crushed and in despair? And, and, and we caution people, don't think so badly about yourself. Oh, you, you know, don't be so hard on yourself, Mr. Tax Collector. You're, you raise your eyes up. It's okay. Stand up. Brush yourself off. You're doing okay. The Pharisee, but, but I'll ask, if, if you were to just tell the tax collector, don't be crushed by the law. It's not that big of a deal. Get up and go. If you were to tell that to him, who goes home with real joy in this story? Who goes home with real joy? The Pharisee thinks he goes home with joy. He thinks, I'm better than that guy. I'm not that bad off. I've done, I'm not like other people. I'm going to go. He goes home with a form of joy. It's a joy in himself. It's a self-centered joy. He is stuck, though, in his own form of idolatry with himself as the center. But Mr. Tax Collector, he goes home in true joy. He goes home in true contentment. He goes home in true joy because he has been justified. And this is my desire for you. This is my desire for us. That we admit we are crushed by the law of God. And that we confess. And that we look to Christ. That we hear the gospel call. That we believe and trust in Christ. And that we do this and that it leads to our great joy and satisfaction and contentment in Christ. A joy and a satisfaction that nothing in this life can steal away. Nothing. That's what I'm after. Nothing. A joy 
that is so deep and so real and so central that nothing, no sickness, no poverty, no discouragement, no death, no anything that comes your way can steal it. It is in that joy, in that great satisfaction in our Savior that we then and only then have any hope of being empowered by the Spirit to go and live a life that honors Him. Sorry, we're closing the Ten Commandments. That's a little extra. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want to honor God? Do you want to be obedient to His commands? Satisfy yourself in Him above every other satisfaction this world is selling to you. Satisfy yourself in Christ. Satisfy yourself in Him and in His gospel and you will glorify Him, and you will be truly satisfied. You'll glorify Him, and you will be truly satisfied because you will be possessing the one who truly has the ability to satisfy the human heart. My heart from this series is this, that we be crushed in ourselves and satisfied in Christ. Satisfied in Christ. Let's pray. Father, press this upon my heart upon our hearts. This world throws so many things at us, God. And we need an anchor for the soul. I need an anchor for the soul. I need a satisfaction this world cannot give me. And it is a satisfaction that is found in the reconciliation between me, a fallen creature, and you, a holy and righteous God, by one means, the work of my Savior, live the life I should have lived, died the death that I deserve, so that through repentance and faith, I am forgiven of my sin, justified, reconciled, adopted into your family. God, may that be the heartbeat of the life of this church. Satisfaction in all that Christ is for us and all that he is for us alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.